If you would, I'm going to ask you to make a list of five things that God has blessed you with in 2015. Just a quick list, five ways that God has blessed you this past year. I'm going to ask Brian Stewart, one of our elders, to come and lead us in a time of prayer, and that's particularly a prayer of thanks for the things that God has done for us. So come up with that list. You don't have to share it with anybody but God. Just get it in your mind, and Brian's going to come and lead us. Let us pray. Father God, five things just seem so minimal. Lord, I pray that we stretch our minds to see all the blessings that you have placed in our lives. The Christmas season is a great time to reflect on the blessing that you have given us in Jesus. As we celebrate his birth, Lord, I pray that that blessing will be in the front of our minds and in our hearts as we give gratitude to you for our precious Redeemer. And Lord, individually, help us to remember, Lord, that you bless us in tremendous ways each and every day. We thank you for that. Thank you for the love that drives that. And I pray as we head into the new year, Lord, that we will have lives of gratitude uh, that are pointed directly to you, that point others to you so they can experience the same blessings that we do. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. I have spent some time these past couple of weeks with some great scholars as I've been getting ready for this message today. People like John Ortberg and David Jeremiah, Billy Sunday and Philip Yancey, they, they have just had some unbelievable insights. Now when I say I spent time with them, I obviously don't mean in person, but reading a lot of the things that they have put together and they've done some tremendous research. So I want to make sure that they get credit for the work that they have done. A lot of what you'll hear today is a compilation of some of their insights and their research. They have reminded me of things that I had forgotten, and they showed me some things that I had never seen before, and I want to bring all of that out for you today as we take kind of a strange look at the Christmas story. But we're going to begin it with a question, and it's a question better offered by this little video clip than it would be from me. Watch this, would you? You could either live your dreams or live your fears. I think the majority of people actually are not living their dreams, but are living their fears. So I want to ask you a question. What are your fears? That's actually just a small segment of a clip off of YouTube that we found this past week. We were going to show you a lot more of it, but last night we lost some of the sound on it and we had to whittle it down to just that little piece. But I really wanted you to hear that question, what are you afraid of? People live either their dreams or their fears. That's great insight. But the majority of people tend to live their fears even more than their dreams. It's a strange thing when you begin to think through that idea of people living their fears. But when you break down what fear really is, it makes a bit more sense. It's been defined over and over and over again this way. Fear is false evidence appearing real. doesn't matter what type of fear it is or what it has to do with. More often than not, it is false evidence that appears real and then causes us to act or react in certain ways. Now, that's true physically. That is true emotionally. That's true intellectually. And it's true spiritually. People get false evidence, they believe it's real, rather than pushing through to the truth, they react on the fear, they react on the false evidence. There is probably no story in the Bible that describes that better than the story of one man's life tucked away in the middle of the Christmas story. 
He'll be familiar to you when you hear his name. His story is found in Matthew chapter 2. If you brought a Bible with you, open up there with me. Oftentimes, when we're telling the Christmas story or reading the Christmas story, we skip over this guy. because It's not a really feel-good part of everything that we have come to know at this time of year. We like the idea of joy and merriment, family and celebration, and we like the idea of the Christmas story, and when we share it, we don't want to just hang our hat on this part. Yet it is central to our understanding of the story, and it is central in our exploration for truth. Hopefully that'll all make sense to you in just a minute. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod was driven by fear. False evidence that appeared real to him mixed together with his own issues in life and his own perceptions caused that fear to drive his actions. It was a heinous action, actually, happening during a, a horrible time in history. If you're a note-taker... In your Bible, you may want to draw a bracket out in the margin around verses 16 and 17. And next to that bracket, write this, or these words. Slaughter of the innocents or martyrdom of the innocents. Now that was a, a time in history that the Bible records, but revisionists are trying to make it go away. They want to say that it didn't happen. Much like the revisionists are trying to address the Holocaust today. They want to say that the Holocaust didn't happen. There was no widespread genocide of the Jews. Well, they're doing the exact same thing with the slaughter of the innocents or the martyrdom of the innocents. 
They're wanting to say it didn't happen, that Herod never did that. The interesting thing about that is they would have to remove everything else we know about Herod in order to make this period disappear. Herod was a horrible man, a violent, vicious man. Though scholars disagree on exactly how many wives he had, they would say there were 10 to 11 of them. And of those 10 or 11 women, he only loved one. But she had made a power play, or at least he assumed that she was making a power play. And in order to silence it and to make sure that nothing happened, he had her executed, the only woman that he ever loved. He wanted to drive the point home that he wasn't going to be controlled by anybody, so he had his mother-in-law killed also. Fellas, no comment. And then he decided to have his two brothers-in-law killed, and then two of the sons that he had had by this lady were executed as well. You see, this was a violent, vicious man. And anybody that would speak on their behalf had their crosshairs firmly planted on their chest as well. To go so far as this, Herod wanted to make sure that nobody would ever say anything against him. His barber stepped forward to try to defend the lives of the two sons he was going to kill. I don't know exactly what the barber said, but I do know this. History records it. Herod had him killed. Had his barber killed for speaking on behalf of his own sons. Caesar would say about Herod, given the Jews' lack of interest in eating pork and their prohibition from that, that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his sons. That's who Herod was. The guy was just an atrocity. It got carried out of his home and outside of his family into the whole rest of society as well. There are a group of people that were protesting the things of Herod. So he decided to silence them by rounding them all up, having the leaders of that group burned alive and the others all executed. Nobody was going to speak against Herod. Five days before he died, he had another one of his sons killed because that son made a move for power in what Herod believed was premature. His will recorded that when he died, they were to kill prominent Jews in Israel so that there would be weeping in the land. That's how horrible he was. He feared that nobody would be sad when he died, so he wanted to make sure there were still mourners. There were still tears shed in the land, so he executed other people. Yet the revisionist would like to say that he wouldn't have killed these babies. That was just too atrocious. It was too heinous. There's no way he would have done it. Well, look at everything else he did. If you want to remove this part of history, then you have to remove Herod, and you can't remove him from history. The truth is that everything that Herod did was fueled by fear. He had been given this position as ruler of the Jewish land. Though he wasn't a king, he was referred to that way. Caesar was the king. Rome controlled all of the land. Rome controlled all of the holy lands. Rome controlled all of Israel. But they didn't want to live there. So they would appoint governors to watch over the land. Herod was really a governor, but he was given the title king. Caesar gave it to him, and Herod lived it. There were at least three Herods from the same line. This man called himself Herod the Great. He was afraid of somebody else stepping on his toes, trying to take his job, trying to get his position of authority in the land of the Jews. So he would do whatever it took to make sure that didn't happen. Fear governed everything he did. 
Now, interestingly enough, when the Magi came to him, they would ask a question, innocently ask a question that would really throw fuel on this fire. Go back with me to the beginning of the passage we just read in chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, now here's this important question, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The one born king of the Jews, in Herod's world, nobody else could be born into that position. That was his. He had been given that title, king of the Jews. So when they innocently asked this question, where is the one born king of the Jews? It was this massive insult. And in Herod's world, what are you you talking about? There's an enemy in the land? Even as we read it in the Christmas story, and he says, well, tell me where he was born so that I can go and worship him. That all sounds so pure. Now, we understand the motives behind it. He didn't want to go worship him. He wanted to kill him. But do you know why he wanted to kill him? Because he was afraid of him. That's why he wanted to kill him. False evidence appearing real was pushing Herod to do things that are unspeakable. And he did. He killed all of the babies. These little boys born from the time of Jesus to two years later, they were all slaughtered, the slaughter of the innocents, because one man was afraid, because one man was scared, not for his life, but for his position. David Jeremiah would say that fear is an instant emotional response in the face that appears in the face of information or circumstances. It's a reaction. It comes out very quickly when we're afraid. We just do the first or second thing that comes to mind without really processing everything. And it appears that that's what Herod was doing, trying to protect a way of life. He was operating on sound bites. He was operating on little bits of information. And he refused to push all the way through to the truth because he was threatened. When he was threatened, fear kicked in and caused all of this to happen. Isn't that horrible? Now, really, to understand all of it, you have to look at what was happening in the Jewish hierarchy during those days. This is the way culture and society set everything up. So Herod was just living the way everybody else lived. They had an extreme class system, and it was based on the worship of their gods. Every Jew, every person in Israel during those days had a god. Many of them were different. There was a wide variety of gods, small g gods. I'm not talking about Jehovah God, even though the Jews would worship him. They would worship Jehovah. They would worship the one that they called Yahweh. We worship Jehovah God, the only God there is. But they had all kinds of other wannabe gods underneath Jehovah. And oftentimes, the worship of those small g gods overshadowed everything else. It was their belief that you were created by the God you worshiped. So within their system, they believed that the king or the ruler was created by the God. Now, that's not necessarily Jehovah or Yahweh. That's just the God, the prominent God. He created the kings or the rulers, and everybody else was created by lesser gods. Right below the God were the, or was the God that created the members of the ruling class and the priest, those that were a part of the inner circle of the king. Underneath them in a a class system still, we found the musicians, the artisans, the craftsmen, and the merchants. All of these people of prominence within the community were created in the third tier. And then we got into the peasants and the slaves. 
And everybody believed that the peasants and the slaves were created by the lesser gods, the least of the gods. And because of the way they were created, they had little social standing at all. They weren't considered of any value or importance. They were nothing but peasants or slaves. Jesus was born into that type of a family. Herod was created by the God. Jesus was created by one of the least of the gods, born into a peasant family, born into the the least of social standings. But he had another issue that he was up against, Jesus did. When they called him the king of the Jews and the Magi said, where is the one born the king of the Jews? They insinuated that a child would become a threat to Herod. Children in those days had no standing at all. They weren't just to be seen and not heard. They weren't even supposed to be seen. In fact, children were believed to not have a voice in Israel. So when they said, where is the child born the king of the Jews? That was this massive insult to Herod. What are you talking about? A child that's going to take my throne, a little baby that's going to take my throne. There's no way that could happen. It was as if they spit in his face because society said, we don't want anything to do with children. Children don't have a place here. They need to grow up before they find their voice and certainly before they use their voice. So Herod was insulted by that, but then we can crank it up a notch. Jesus was not only a child, but he had another name attached to him as well. Society gave it to him. In the Greek, it was as uncomplimentary as it would be today. The Greek name that would have been attached or title that would have been attached to Jesus as a child is this. He would have been called a mamzer. Every society has had a name for the exact same situation. That is a child born from a forbidden relationship. You can use your imagination and figure out what that word is in our society today, but every society since has had a name just like it. In the Jewish society and in the Greek world during those days, Jesus would have been known as a mamzer. He was born from a forbidden relationship. So now Herod's having to process a child that is trying to lay claim to his throne and not just any type of a child, but a mamzer. A mamzer is after his throne. Herod couldn't deal with this. Most of society couldn't deal with that. In fact, during those days, a child born as a mamzer could be destroyed, easily, legally destroyed. Here's the way it would happen. The head of the household, the father, the husband, the man in that home was the one who would decide whether children lived or died. If they were born as a mamzer out of a forbidden relationship, the head of the household could easily take that child and throw them outside onto the dung heap where they would die of exposure. The same word that we would use today, they used then, only they used it legally and they used it acceptably. The child died of exposure because the head of the household decided they weren't worthy to live. They had eight days to make that decision. In the first eight days of life in the Jewish world, the Greek Jewish world, it was said that you were better off born as a plant than as a baby because the percentage of those that were killed was mind-boggling, just left out in the, the sewers to die. By law, Jesus could have been in that same situation. Joseph, the Bible says, had it in mind that he was going to divorce Mary quietly and send her on his way. He wasn't the kind of man that would have ever done something like this, but the law said he could have. Mamsers were just discarded. 
thrown away, seen with no value whatsoever and no significance in society. Yet this one was trying to lay claim to Herod's throne. So Herod was upset. He wanted him killed. And he would do whatever it took to make that happen. Isn't that a horrible story? But it's true. Don't pay attention to the revisionists that are trying to say that it isn't. It's true. It happened in the middle of the Christmas story. Fear was very, very prevalent in that story. It governed a great deal of what happened, not just in Herod's life, but in other people's lives as well. And God knew it. God knew it. He knew that fear would be this overwhelming emotion that had to be addressed. Want to know how we know that? Turn over one chapter. Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18. The Bible says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now it starts with this angel having to say to Joseph, Don't be afraid, Joseph. Right from the beginning in the Christmas story, God knew he was going to have to confront fear. God knew that he was going to have to deal with that within every person that ever came face to face with Jesus. Don't be afraid, Joseph. You take this child home. You take Mary home, but you're going to take the child home. Well, the same thing happens when we come face to face with Christ. We have to listen as God says, don't be afraid. You take this child home. You take this Savior home. Yet we still have to push past the fear, false evidence that appears real. You may have heard people say before that if you take Jesus home, he's going to take away from you all the things that you enjoy. You take Jesus home, he's going to change your life and there's not going to be any fun left. You take Jesus home and he's going to try to make you into a different person. You take Jesus home and this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Much of what people say about Christ is nothing more than a rumor or speculation, false evidence that appears real. But when you push through to the truth, what you find is that when you take Jesus home, you become the person that God designed you to be. When you take Jesus home, you discover life the way God gave it to us. And it's life that doesn't just exist here, but it's life that goes on forever. That's the truth of Christ. But we've got to power through the false evidence in order to discover it, that we might actually find the relationship that provides for us all that the creator of the universe has in store for us. Push through the fear. Started with Joseph, and it it continued all the way through the New Testament as people had to confront their fears about Christ. Let me show you one from the end of his life. Kind of a strange place for us to go in Christmas time. We're going to look at part of the Easter story, but this is good stuff. Go with me to John chapter 18. There's a great conversation recorded in two chapters of the Bible. Great conversation. This is chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. 
So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now that's incredibly insightful. We'll come back to it. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me... I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. The Bible would tell us through the rest of the Gospels that Pilate was actually scared. His wife was scared in this conversation. But John gives us great insight into how they talk to one another, how Pilate addressed Jesus. And you saw it in verse 33. Look again at how he started this. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? What an interesting question. You see, Herod the Great had died just a few years after Jesus was born. Herod the Great died. Herod Antipas, his son, was now in charge, but he never picked up the title king of the Jews. Herod the Great had it. Nobody else would be called that except Jesus, and Jesus would be the last one to die with it, hanging over his head on the cross. Pilate says, are you really the king of the Jews? 
Do you understand the depth of what he was asking? This is it. He was saying, are you the son of God? Were you conceived by the Holy Spirit? Did you come to save the world? Are you the king of the Jews? Were you born of a virgin? Is all of that true? Pilate was in pursuit of his own understanding of truth. You heard it right in the story. What is truth? He'd heard all kinds of false evidence all of his life as a Roman governor. That's what he had to plow through all the time. And here he was face to face with Jesus. And he said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you really the son of God? Are you really conceived of the Holy Spirit? Are you really born of a virgin? Did you really come to save the world? Or, now listen to this, are you a mamzer? Is that all you are? You have to answer the question. Is that who you are? Or is this other reality really truth? It's curious to me that Jesus didn't really explain it to him. All he said was, I am. I am the king of the Jews. That put everything else aside. Today there are still people asking the exact same question. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Which boiled down means this. Is he the son of God? Was he conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin? And did he come to save the world? Or is he a mamzer? There are mainline religions that have divided that question out. Though they may not say it in that terminology, that's exactly what they're asking. Is Jesus Christ the Son of the God, conceived by the Spirit and born of a virgin that came to save the world, or is he a mamzer? And when they make statements like this, that Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't really the Christ. Jesus was a great teacher and a great prophet, but he wasn't the Son of God. Jesus was created by God, but he wasn't God. When they make statements like that, my friends, all they're saying is he was a mamzer. That's it. That is false evidence that appears real. The truth is he was the king of the Jews. That's who he was. Fear says, hold on to the first definition. Truth says, look at the second. And if you look at the second, you will see him for who he is. If you can face your fears, then you can find Christ. There are a group of psychologists that have spent decades studying fear, and every year they print a list of the most recent fears of the ones that have governed the past 12 months. I just saw this a couple weeks ago. Here's what they've come up with for 2015 in descending order, the top 10 fears of 2015. Number 10, losing your freedom. Number 9, fear of the unknown. Number 8, pain. Number seven, fear of disappointment. Number six, fear of misery. Number five, the fear of loneliness. Number four, ridicule. Number three, rejection. Number two, failure. And the number one fear in 2015 is the same as 2014 and 13 and 12 and back several years, the fear of death. Those are the top ten fears that govern our society Now, here's the cool thing about that, a couple things. Number one, the Bible speaks to every one of them. The Bible speaks to every one of these fears. I have the sheet on my my desk. I went through and looked for Scripture on each one of them. This morning, I had it in mind that we were going to go through each one, one by one, and I would show you the Scripture that speaks to each. But I decided we didn't have enough time to do that today, so I'm going to ask you to trust me. The Bible speaks to every one of these fears. And here's the second thing I want you to know about it. Jesus covers every one of them. Jesus covers every one of them. 
People that wrestle with these types of fears and have their lives defined by them find them place, themselves over and over and over again in a place of, of darkness, in a place of despair and depression. It's a place where there is little hope when you are living constantly with the fear of pain or the fear of disappointment or misery or loneliness or whatever the case might be. It is a, a desert unto its own. And unless you have experienced it, which most everybody in this room has at some level, you don't know what it's like to come across sudden hope in the middle of it. Spiritually, when we recognize that we are living in a spiritual desert and there is no hope for us because we only see Jesus as a mamzer, not as the king of the Jews or the son of God, it's the same as all of this. There is a spiritual fear that can barely be defined. But when we discover Jesus and the hope that he brings to us, everything becomes very clear for us. In order to understand that, we have to go back to places like Isaiah 53 so that we can really see Jesus for who he is. Go back there with me. We've been looking at this passage for a couple weeks. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Can you imagine the truth that was contained in those verses 2,000 years ago? The whole land was a desert, was hopeless. You heard what was going on. Herod was in charge. If you spoke up against him, expect that your life would come to an end. If you did anything contrary, expect that your life didn't matter. You lived in the class system. And if you weren't born into the right family, there was little to no hope for you. And then Jesus came like a root out of dry ground. The Bible says very little about the first 30 years of his life. Very little at all. But the last three years of his life, we know exactly who he was and what he provided for everybody. At 33 years old, he died. Now, you want an interesting fact? Here you go. Fun fact from the Bible. At 33 years of age, Herod was given the title by Caesar, king of the Jews. At 33 years old, Jesus died with that title over his head on the cross, and he was the last one to ever bear it. Over the course of 33 years, particularly the last three years of Jesus' life, The root that came up out of dry ground came alive and brought life to everyone that would ever sit underneath it. Every person that had had their life governed by fear had the opportunity to sit down underneath that root and have the fears taken care of. All they had to do was move past the fear of the root. All they had to do was move past the fear of Jesus and they could find the hope that he offered. That's an amazing thing. If you've been here the last three weeks, you've watched as this root has come alive. The same thing happens in the life of a believer when they move past their fears and get to a place where they see Jesus for who he really is. And that means that you have to get to a place where he is no longer a mamzer, but he is the king of the Jews. 
He is the king of the Jews. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and the savior of the world. And if you can come to a place where you understand that, your fears will just begin to fall off as Jesus speaks to every one of them. And the Bible touches every one of them. As you sit underneath the root in the shade and the shelter and the protection that it provides, you get the wonderful privilege of being counted as those that have discovered Jesus for who he really is. And that's good news. All of those things come together that we might understand Jesus' ability to meet us where we're at. He was born as a, a baby, as we all are. He came as a baby in a time when babies were insignificant. He was a child in a time when nobody valued children. They were looking for a a warrior prince to come and save the nation of Israel. It wouldn't have worked. Herod would have been at war with that warrior prince right from the beginning. Jesus grew up as a tender shoot, as a root out of dry ground to become the savior of the world. And now, when he was born, he was fully God. There's no question about it. But 33 years later, he would change the course of history by coming the way he did. It's a great author, George MacDonald, that always writes about princes and princesses. He had a friend of his come and confront him one day and said, how come you write about princesses so much? And he said to him, because every little girl is a princess. The fellow that was confronting him said, well, I don't understand that. Every little girl is a princess? He said, that's right. How, how, how does that work? George said, what is a princess to the man? The man replied, the daughter of a king. And George said, every little girl is a princess. And Jesus started the whole process for us to understand the royalty that you are a part of. His story is much like George MacDonald's as he writes about who he is, that you might understand who you are in him. It's a great story. He came as a root out of dry ground to provide for you hope and a future. I hope you see that. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, we think about the things that were happening when you were born into this world, and it in many ways just makes our guts churn. Still happening around us today, though, the slaughter of the innocent. In fact, it happens not just in distant foreign lands, but it happens right here, and we see it all the time. Lord, we also see people that are governed by their fears and paralyzed by them. Emotionally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. Lord, we know the truth. The truth is that you can take all of our fears and make them go away. So we pray that you will. Lord, I pray that you'll do that by helping us understand who you are. That's my prayer for every person in this room. That they will power through false evidence that appears real and discover truth. Different than Pilate, I pray they'll discover a truth that changes their lives. And so I'm asking that you'll be at work to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.